Well, we're starting a new series uh, entitled This Is My Son, Listen to Him. It's a series looking uh, through the Gospel of Matthew and focusing on the, the five discourses of Jesus' teaching in Matthew's Gospel. One of the uh, most common uh, answers that people give to the question, who is Jesus, is something along the lines of uh, Jesus was a good moral teacher who taught us how to live. I found it interesting that when I uh, have asked people who say this kind of thing, uh, what they think is particularly good about Jesus' teaching, they're not actually able to give much detail uh, because many who say it uh, haven't actually read much, if anything, of Jesus' teaching firsthand. And, and maybe even as Christians, we're not as familiar with Jesus' teaching as we should be. Are we able to uh, echo Peter's words, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This series that... Uh, we're doing is uh, the title of the series is taken from uh, the father's words to Peter, James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when he uh, they saw him in his glory and the father said to them this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him listening to Jesus words is crucial to us coming to know uh, who Jesus is and so uh, our faith in him is one that's not only sincere but is based on the truth of who he is and what he teaches so that we may as he instructed us uh, observe all that he has commanded us now sometimes uh, uh, evangelicals that's us uh, we've been accused of of spending too much time uh, with Paul in Romans than with Jesus in the Gospels. I don't think that's an accusation that's really true. Uh, I, I actually hear evangelicals spending a lot of time in the Gospels, uh, in, in the student ministry uh, that I do on campus and around Australia uh, in the um, the ministry I'm a part of, uh, the Gospels are actually the main tools that we use in introducing people to Jesus. But I think that we've uh, we may have bought into the, the the false assumption that lies behind that accusation, uh, the assumption that Paul in his letters and the other, uh, as well as the other New Testament epistles, only give one angle on the Christian faith, while Jesus in the Gospels gives us uh, another angle, uh, one that's been neglected, but is actually uh, more valuable, uh, more important than Paul's angle, and, and an angle that we need to rediscover. Uh, the, the assumption goes something like uh, we've relied too much on Paul, particularly since the Reformation, and what that's led to is a very legal approach to the Christian faith, to a church that's been judgmental 
and violent and arrogant uh, historically and portrays God as uh, wrathful. But uh, rediscovering the teaching of Jesus will help us return to a a gentler, uh, more non-violent, more inclusive, non-judgmental faith that's truer to what Jesus founded uh, and which shows God to be more loving and uh, inclusive and and compassionate. That's the assumption uh, that's behind that accusation. This idea that uh, Paul's theology was a later distortion of the original theology and gospel of Jesus was quite popular about a 100 years ago in the start and the middle of the 20th century among liberal theologians who were quite open about the fact that they didn't actually believe that the Bible was inspired or a reliable record of the true Christian faith. But it's an idea that's still floating around today and as sadly is often the case has been taken up by those who do claim a, a confidence in the Bible. Um, and uh, many of these people would say that they're in the broad evangelical camp. But as we study this uh, series of uh, a large portion of Jesus' teaching in, this, um, in the, the Gospel of Matthew, we'll actually see that uh, Paul and Jesus didn't disagree Uh, They didn't present two different incompatible uh, angles on the Christian faith. Uh, The the, the difference uh, between them is that Jesus taught as the Christ and he taught looking forward to the cross that was to come. While Paul and the other New Testament writers, they taught as servants of Christ looking back to the cross and and fleshing out how uh, the work of Christ at the cross and in his resurrection, uh, what that means for us today. But the essence of their teaching, Jesus and the apostles, uh, their gospel is the same. That is some, uh, some more background uh, info that we, uh, we need to know before we launch into this series. Um, Jesus is presented in Matthew's Gospel as uh, the new and better Moses, uh, among other things. Matthew points us in that direction really uh, early on by including uh, in his birth account of uh, Jesus the Uh, the account of Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt with the baby Jesus to escape Herod's murder of the of the children which itself should make us think of Moses who himself as a child was rescued from a murderous king then Matthew says uh, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Sorry, I'll just get that up there again. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Quoting from Hosea 11.1, um, a clear reference there to the Exodus. 
Then at the very start of his ministry, Jesus is baptised. Just like the Israelites passing through the sea. Straight after his baptism, he goes out into the wilderness. is tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Those parallels the, uh, the wandering of the Israelites uh, for 40 years in the wilderness when they are uh, not only tested, but they put God to the test. But it also parallels the 40 days that Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving and writing the law. Jesus counters the devil's temptations with this phrase, it is written. The words of scripture, uh, the words of God's law that had been written down um, by and through Moses. Then after calling his 12 disciples and with a great crowd following him, he comes to a mountain from which he delivers uh, the first of these five uh, blocks of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll be looking at today. Matthew records a number of uh, Jesus' mountaintop experiences, more than any other gospel. Uh, But Jesus here is like Moses, up on the mountain and delivering God's word to God's people. We see uh, Jesus feeding the multitude in the wilderness, uh, bringing his disciples safely across the sea, giving instructions about Sabbath rest and calling people to come to him for rest. We see him transforming the Passover into what we now call Holy Communion. And he establishes the new covenant in his death and resurrection. Matthew's Gospel, uh, as I said, contains five large blocks of Jesus' teaching. They divide the book into five main sections with his birth and his death and resurrection like bookends holding the five sections together. Now Matthew's using a fivefold structure here which uh, wasn't uh, unheard of in other ancient Jewish writings and they're designed to correspond to the first five books of the Old Testament known as the Torah or the books of Moses. Uh, Now, it's not that uh, the Sermon on the Mount directly corresponds to Genesis. Uh, What's important here is the number, five blocks of teaching corresponding to the five books of Moses. Now, at the heart of the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses was the promise, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. In Jesus, uh, in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, Matthew refers to a promise from Isaiah 7:14 that this promised child of the Virgin would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, God walking among us and being our God. Then at the end of the Gospel, Jesus' last words to his disciples 
I am with you always to the end of the age. Now all of these things should remind us of Moses. They should show us that Jesus is this new and better Moses. And this isn't just Matthew's invention, this connection between Jesus and Moses. The Jews already knew that there would come a new and better Moses. Deuteronomy 18 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will call him to account. So Jesus is this this new and better Moses, the fulfilment of that prophecy in Deuteronomy. He's the one who comes to establish the covenant, to dispense the covenantal blessings, blessings to uh, to call people to account. He comes to fulfil the law. He comes to save his people from slavery and to bring them into uh, the promised place of rest. Now, seeing Jesus in this way is uh, really important for us to understand how to apply uh, not only Jesus' teaching in Matthew, but especially uh, this first uh, block of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7. Now, one popular understanding of uh, this sermon is that it's Jesus giving us a new teaching uh, about how we should behave if we're to be his followers. Uh, This idea says that it replaces the law of Moses and becomes a new law, a law for Christians, an ethical framework that will make Christians uh, distinctly different from everyone else. There's there's a movement called uh, Red Letter Christians uh, and they say this, they say it's it's almost, it's more important to read and follow this sermon than it is to read, say, Paul's teachings in his epistles because it's actually Jesus' words first-hand, not simply someone's second-hand interpretation of them. Now, there's a few reasons why I don't think this uh, popular view of the Sermon on the Mount is correct, this view that uh, Jesus is teaching us a new law to follow that replaces the law of Moses. Firstly, if if it was meant to be Jesus' all-important final instructions for his followers in light of what he's accomplished in his death and resurrection, then it's kind of in the wrong place in the gospel. It should have been placed at the end when Jesus sends his disciples out to uh, make disciples and to baptise and to teach them all that I've commanded you. It would make sense that it would be there. But Matthew puts it right at the start of his gospel making it not a set of final instructions, but a teaching that sets the scene. It prepares us for what is to come in the next three years of Jesus' ministry as he takes his journey to the cross. The climax, the the focus of Matthew's Gospel, the central message of his Gospel, as, as with all four Gospels, isn't 
this sermon, but the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. If we want to know what his final instructions are in light of those events, we need to go to his final words in the gospel. What we know is the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptising, teaching them, uh, knowing that I am with you always. Secondly, Jesus doesn't actually say much, if anything, that's new in this sermon. When people responded to what he had said, they were amazed not because this was a new teaching, but because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So it's not what he taught so much as how he taught it. He's not replacing or altering the law. He's simply teaching the law in its full power. He's peeling away the traditions and the misunderstandings and the distortions that had been attached to it throughout history by uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is teaching the law in this sermon so that its full meaning, its full beauty is enabled to shine. And so the full weight of the law would come to Israel at this time, the time when the law was about to be perfectly fulfilled by Jesus himself. Thirdly, all four Gospels show us that salvation is found not in following Jesus' ethical or moral teaching, but in being redeemed by Jesus' death and resurrection. His teaching reveals his identity. It, It opens up for us the secrets of the kingdom of God that has arrived in him. But it's there as the preparation for the main event of God's saving action in him and through him. Jesus rarely referred to himself as teacher. He mainly called himself the Son of Man or simply the Son, as well as Lord and Christ. His mission per se was not to teach but to redeem. Jesus taught that the first step of obedience to him is not to try to follow his ethical teaching, but to repent and believe in him as the Messiah, as the Christ. And then the obedience to his uh, ethical moral teaching will, will follow. But as, as I've already pointed out, Jesus' moral ethical teaching is simply the teaching of the law that was already given through Moses. So, so what's the point of the sermon? We know that Jesus taught the content of this sermon uh, many times, um, probably hundreds of times, if not thousands of times, over the three years of his ministry. We we see elements of this sermon appearing in other places uh, and at other times uh, in the Gospels. But as I said, Matthew is making a specific point by uh, recording this sermon right at the beginning of 
Jesus' ministry. He's linking Jesus with Moses. He's showing that he is, like Moses, the mediator of the covenant. And covenant is the key word here. This isn't actually a sermon as we understand a sermon. It's better to be to call it a covenant declaration. Jesus is reenacting what happened for the Israelites at Mount Sinai. From the mountain, he's calling his audience, a, a crowd of a Jewish people with his 12 disciples at the centre. And, you know, the number 12 is significant. It reminds us of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's calling his people, God's people, back to the covenant, uh, the covenant that God had entered into uh, with their forefathers uh, through Moses. Now, right in the middle of this sermon is the Lord's Prayer. The prayer contains seven simple requests, which is a, a model of what anyone in a covenant relationship with God should be seen and, and asking for. And the structure of the prayer corresponds to the structure of the sermon as a whole, as you can see in this chart here. Now that makes sense, doesn't it, if you think about it. If the sermon is actually a declaration of the covenant, then this prayer, which is within the sermon, uh, is a covenant prayer. And so, so we should expect them to have this, this parallel structure. What does this tell us? It, it tells us that true prayer is not about bringing a shopping list to God of the things that we want from him or the things that we want him to do for us. Prayer is an expression of the covenant relationship that God has made with his people. It tells us that obedience to the law of God and prayerfulness before God go hand in hand. One must come with the other. Obedience without prayerfulness is just a dry legalism, devoid of any relationship. And prayer without obedience is just a shallow, hypocritical pietism. As I pray, the Lord shows me the practical outworking of what I'm praying for in his law. How, how the one who is praying before the face of God should be living. Uh, and also how the one who desires to live according to God's word should also be praying. That's why the, the sermons uh, in the series in the coming weeks, uh, the, the titles of each sermon has an article of the Lord's Prayer as their title. So we will, as, as a bonus to looking at the sermon, we'll also be learning a lot about the prayer uh, as we learn about the sermon. Well, our first message in this series on uh, uh, this is my son, listen to him, uh, Jesus' teaching in Matthew's Gospel. And uh, the first in the first section of this series of the Sermon on the Mount is uh, a very well-known passage, uh, probably uh, maybe the, one of the better-known sections of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Beatitudes, uh, Matthew 5, 1 to 10. Uh, Beatitudes literally means blessing. And a covenant 
uh, as we've seen, this is a this is a covenant declaration, and not just a a sermon. A covenant always begins with statements of blessing. That's the whole purpose of a covenant in the first place, of making a covenant to to bring people into a relationship of peace and, and harmony and blessing. And so Jesus begins his covenant declaration on the mountain with the Beatitudes. Uh, he's reminding them of the blessing that they have received uh, that has flown from the Lord to them, his covenant people. Now, the important thing for us to notice is that the Beatitudes don't contain any commands. The Beatitudes are not the law. Jesus isn't telling us uh, what to do or what to be. A few years ago, a, a, a popular Australian Christian writer released a book called Plan B... Be the change you want to see in the world. And uh, one of the reviews of the book uh, hailed it as uh, a simple, practical, easy-to-use manual for a do-it-yourself global ethical revolution. In eight concise, punchy chapters, Dave Andrews unpacks the hidden dynamics in the eight B attitudes and shows us how they can help us reshape our personal political worlds. Now, while this book uh, captured the imagination of, of many, in reality, it's, that's an approach to the Beatitudes that's simply imposing another law on Christians. And, and if we see them that way as just a, uh, instructions on uh, what we must do or what we must be, then... They'll only lead to either despair as we find that we cannot measure up to them or pride when we think that we actually have. The Beatitudes are statements of fact. The declaration of the way that things are and the announcement of the good news of the kingdom to those who are God's covenant people uh, living in the context of a, a of a corrupt and crooked world that's full of evil and sin and is under the curse, they're they're a bit like the angels' words to the shepherds in the Christmas story: "Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, that will be for all the people." Now, the structure of uh, these verses, these Beatitudes, is, is remarkable. Uh, we should expect, shouldn't we, that uh, Jesus is the, uh, the master at uh, giving a sermon and uh, structuring his sermon well. But firstly, note how the first and the last Beatitude both have this statement, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It tells us that uh, these are all about the blessings of being in the kingdom of heaven, uh, which is another term for the kingdom of God. The good news uh, that was declared by Isaiah's uh, messengers on the mountain who have beautiful feet is your God 
reigns. That's the, the, the gospel in a nutshell. Uh, that statement is rephrased by Christians as Jesus is Lord. So these, these, announce, these Beatitudes announce to us the blessings that belong to those who know Jesus is Lord and in him our God reigns. Now, secondly, these eight Beatitudes are presented in two groups of four. And the two groups are parallel to each other, both in that they, they deal with a similar, similar theme, but also in that the, uh, the second four flow out of the first four. The first four are, you could say, Godward, towards God, that they speak of uh, the people's relationship to God in the context of the world in which they live. And the second four are manward, in that they are towards uh, other people. They speak of the people's relationship with others. And, and in this, they, respect, they, they reflect the, the spirit, the heart of the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself. I said they're not the law, but they, they are a picture of someone in covenant relationship with God who, who is actually uh, living in the, uh, the heart of the law. Now, there's, there's a couple of assumptions, uh, right assumptions, that Jesus is making here as he speaks these words. Firstly, he, he assumes that the people that are listening to him, they actually fit the first four categories. Firstly, they are poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, worn out, battling with, with doubt and fear, struggling to see that God is faithful and good. To you who are poor in spirit, he says, I have good news of great joy. The kingdom of, of God has arrived in me and it's for you. I'm coming to, to bring you into it. Uh, it's a kingdom of, of richness, a kingdom where, where God will provide all of your needs, where he will replace your poverty with abundance. Secondly, uh, these people are mourning. They're, they're sorrowful. They're grieving. Much like their forefathers and, and the prophets that came before them who were, who were facing the judgments of God and who were, were being taken off into exile. If you want to know what biblical mourning looks like, then simply read the books like books of uh, Lamentations and Habakkuk and the Old Testament people who, who are grieving and mourning uh, because they see the, the judgment of God that's heavy upon them. Well, to you who mourn, he says, I have good news of great joy. The kingdom of God has arrived in me and in that kingdom... There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. God 
will wipe every tear from your eyes. Thirdly, they are meek. They're downtrodden. They're, they're weak. They're humble, even humiliated, because they are, there are those in this world, the strong and the powerful, who use their power to oppress, to, to bully, to push others down. Well, to you who are weak, he says, I have good news of great joy. The, the kingdom of God has arrived in me and in it you will be restored to your created destiny to be the strong and powerful, to be the rulers over the earth. You will be sons, you will be heirs with me, you will inherit the earth uh, as I have inherited all things from the Father. And fourthly, they're hungry and they're thirsty for righteousness because all around them is unrighteousness and injustice. They see evil people getting away with their evil. They see those who do good never being rewarded. Living with constant injustice, whether uh, in your own personal life or in the world around you, it, it drains you, it exhausts you, it empties you. Jesus says, to you who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, I have good news of great joy. The kingdom of God has arrived in me and it will bring about a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness will be at home. And those living in his kingdom will be satisfied as they see God's righteousness fill the earth. These, these are blessings given to those with nothing. Nothing worthy in themselves to deserve the blessing and nothing that gives them any capacity to, to achieve the blessing themselves. This is this is pure grace given to those who are both undeserving and unable. Those who are helpless, those who are hopeless. Right? Good news of great joy in the kingdom of God. Now, the second assumption, the right assumption that Jesus makes is that the covenant blessings given to these people who have nothing these blessings will cause such a transformation in their lives that they begin to reflect the beauty of this covenant. They actually begin to reflect the character of God himself. So, in that sense, the second set of four Beatitudes flows out from the first. Firstly, those who have been shown mercy, the poor in spirit, who have been given the kingdom of God, they become those who show mercy, even when in this life there's no reward for being merciful. Showing mercy in this world normally means a loss. Uh, whether that's the ungratefulness of those to whom we've shown mercy, whether it's actually costly material loss, 
loss or, or simply no sense of recognition or reward in this life. Well, the good news for the merciful is that their reward is in the kingdom of God. The mercy that they have shown others will be given back to them in equal measure. Secondly, those who have mourned and have been comforted are now pure in heart. Now, this doesn't mean that they're on a a higher moral level. It's not talking necessarily about a, a moral purity in the heart. Jesus is using terminology here from Psalm 24. And Psalm 24 talks about those who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Uh, who want to ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place. And it says those who who want to do that must have clean hands and a pure heart. The good news for the pure in heart, those who are seeking the presence of God, is that instead of the mourning of exile and of banishment from God's presence, Their reward in the kingdom of heaven is that they will see him face to face. They will be in the holy place. Thirdly, the meek. The meek who have been given the promise of inheriting the earth. Well, they're now peacemakers. Because they no longer have to rise up and fight to shake off their human oppressors. They know that God will bring about justice and all the uh, haughty, arrogant people who seek to rule the earth apart from God will one day be thrown down by him. So they can now pray and work for the prosperity of the cities in which they live. They can they can show honour to the rulers who are oppressing them, who are ruling over them. The good news for the peacemakers is their reward is in the kingdom of God. They will be called sons of God. Sons of God is a title that was given to ancient kings, to rulers, because they were supposed to rule over the people with God's authority. So you see how inheriting the earth and being called sons of God is is uh, equivalent phrases. In the kingdom of God, the first are last and the last are first. That those who are mighty and powerful in this world will be at the bottom. Those who are the peacemakers, uh, who don't seek to use their power and their might in this world, uh, will be greatest in the kingdom. And fourthly, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who have been satisfied now in knowing God's righteousness, will they then become practitioners of God's righteousness, even when it means that the world hates them and persecutes them for it. They'll face accusation that their good works are actually evil, that they're belief that what God says is good is actually bad, that their 
proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God is actually judgmentalism and exclusivity and hate speech. The good news for those who are persecuted for righteousness is that their reward is in the kingdom of God. They, they follow in the footsteps of all of the prophets who came before them. And not the least, they follow in the footsteps of Jesus himself, the author and the finisher of their faith who willingly suffered at the hands of evil people so that they may be redeemed through the persecution, the suffering of the cross where he suffered for righteousness. See how these these Beatitudes, while they're so short and simple, are so full and deep and wide because they they display the beauty of the covenant, the character of God who enters into a relationship with grace, of grace with the people and he calls them his own. And as he does this, his character begins to shine in and through them so that they begin to be his true image bearers. Now it should strike us that as Jesus speaks these Beatitudes, he's actually painting a self-portrait. Jesus is poor in spirit. In his incarnation, he emptied himself. He he hid his glory and humbled himself by entering into the experience of humanity in which the Father is invisible. He's not always apparent in the, the sufferings of life. He's, he's only accessible through his word in the scriptures and through the wrestling of prayer. And Jesus, in his humble obedience, uh, walked willingly into the darkness, the spiritual darkness of his suffering and death, where he saw the Father only as the Father's face was turned away from him. In this we see his mercy shine forth, as he took on himself the wrath and the curse of we who crucified him, what we actually deserve. Jesus mourned. He mourned as he walked through this broken world full of sin and disease and death. He he wept at his dear friend Lazarus's tomb, even when he knew that Lazarus would rise from the dead. He was angry at the injustice and the corruption that he saw around him. His sorrow was so great that in the garden he wept drops of blood. In uh, all this sorrow and his mourning, he remained pure in heart. He kept his eyes fixed on his father and his father's will. He knew the joy that was set before him of seeing his father again at the end of it all, not just uh, on his own, but along with all of those whom he redeemed who will be there alongside him. Jesus was meek. He was meek as he, the, 
the Son of Man to whom all of the kingdoms of the world, all of creation uh, belongs to him. He came and he submitted himself to the authorities of this earth, to the, the Jews and to the Gentiles. He never, he never once incited a political rebellion. He, he paid his taxes to an unjust and oppressive regime. He ultimately allowed himself to be arrested by his own people and handed over to the, to the Romans to, to suffer the execution that was normally reserved for traitors and rebels. He lived out the peace that he came to bring, a peace that uh, all who are reconciled to the Father through him will come to know. And Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He sought first his Father's kingdom and righteousness. And in that he knew the Father's provision of, of everything else that he needed to do the Father's will. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of the law and he, he showed us what the fullness of life is as one who perfectly displayed the Father in himself and who lived in the fullness of the Spirit. Because of his display of righteousness, an unrighteous human race persecuted him and killed him, not knowing at the time that they were actually fulfilling what God had already decreed what would happen, that the, the righteous one would go to the cross, bearing the sins of many, the, the righteous for the unrighteous, becoming sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And clothed in his righteousness, we then would be made fit to enter the kingdom of God. The Lord's Prayer begins with those four simple words, Our Father in Heaven. The cry of covenant children to their covenant Father. The Beatitudes, in showing us Jesus, have shown us what that cry means. Jesus, the Son who lives in the eternal covenant of love with the Father, the love of the Father, who displays and who dispenses these covenant blessings now to us. He, he calls us in to become one with him, to be in him through the redemption that he accomplished at the cross. And so as we are in him, we too may now live in these blessings. We may see these beatitudes as being descriptive of us. And in so doing, we know this good news, this, this great joy that is found in Jesus, in whom the kingdom of God has come.